All right, we'll go ahead and get started for this, our second session. Continue this discussion about the return of Christ and what that does, can, and should mean to us. I will be following very similarly in, uh, in theme from what uh, Dr. Thornberry has already presented. And I will also just go ahead and say, he mentioned it for the two of us, I will say also that it's quite a privilege to be here with you and just to look at the scriptures with you and get to know some of you, already did know some, and get to meet some others and to see what God is doing here. So it's a privilege to be with you. But I want to look in this session at the issue of eschatology more generally. What should we do with it? One of the reasons is that I'm convinced that much of the talk that goes on in our churches about eschatology in times the return of Christ is at best feeble folly and at worst a sinful misuse of the Bible. Homiletics class, begin with provocative statement. There we go. I think there's something for us to think about here because so much of the conversation is caught up with uh, discerning the times and figuring out how it's going to happen, when and where. Our charts and flannel graphs, we left those at home today. But, you know, exactly, this is when it happens here and there. But when you begin to look at the Bible, not once in the whole of Scripture are we encouraged to try to chart out the timeline of what's going to happen. This raises the question of what is the Bible trying to do? What is God trying to do when he gives us this doctrine? This introduces then uh, really a, a key point that's foundational for the rest of what I want to do here. And it's what I refer to simply as using Bible doctrine in Bible ways. Something I think we need to think more about. We confess rightly that we need to get our teaching, our doctrine from the scriptures. We're aware that we are not wise enough to figure out the teachings of God on our own. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians, where are the wise men of the age? Where are the debaters? And how many of them ever dreamed up the gospel? Of course, none. We're aware of what the, even if we don't know this phrase, the old Scots Confession of 1560 has great language and a number of things, but it mentions that we are so blind, so dead, so backward, and so perverse that there is no way that we can understand the ways of God without it being revealed to us in the Scriptures. We know that. But the Scriptures don't only give us the doctrine, they also show us how to use it. Because once we get the doctrine from the Bible, if we treat the Bible simply as something from which to squeeze various doctrines, and then we do with them as we will, we're going to err. You can think of many examples of this. The Bible teaches us that salvation is by grace alone, not by works. Key Bible doctrine. But let us loose to ourselves simply to come up with our ways to apply that, and before long we can be saying, salvation is all by grace. Pastor, don't be coming rebuking me about my sin. I'm good with God. Yes, I live like a pagan. Yes, I talk like a pagan. Of course, I have no concern for the things of God. But salvation is by grace. I'm hiding my works. 
that's a perversion of that doctrine. That's not how the Bible uses that doctrine. We could illustrate with plenty of others. We need not only to say, what does the Bible teach us, but then how does the Bible show us to use that doctrine? So my question in this session is, what does the New Testament do with the teaching of the second coming of Christ? Because it certainly doesn't tell us to try to figure out times and dates, though there has been so much energy wasted in pursuit of it. I said at the beginning that at worst it is a sinful waste of our time. That's strong language. But I say that because Jesus told us we can't know it. So when we begin to pursue that, we are in rebellion against him. So what does the Bible encourage us to do? Actually, when you begin to trace through the scripture, there are some key themes. Almost every time when you see the return of Christ mentioned, the biblical authors are exhorting us in certain ways. Because you've noticed this as well. This is a key point for our own teaching and preaching too. You hardly ever have bare doctrine in the scriptures either. Doctrine always is applied. It has a point. So also in our teaching and preaching ministries, we're not simply here to give data. But in light of these truths, how then shall we live? And so this is what the Bible is doing with the teaching of the return of Christ. So what I want us to do is just kind of walk through the New Testament and look at a few passages and gather the information that we see there. There are many more, but we'll simply look at a few. And to set that up, I want to make my first point here. And that is simply, as we look at the teaching of the return of Christ, there's a key point to it. There are many things we don't know, many things we don't need to know. But the key thing is what was just expounded a moment ago, that Jesus is coming back, that he will rescue and vindicate his people. He will subdue his enemies and he will rule. That's the truth. And it, in some ways, almost sounds like, uh, you know, that's a little lesser. Well, yes, of course. Uh, but if we just think about that a little while, we'll see this is the truth around which we rally. We can discuss other things, but this is the truth around which we rally. I think I first encountered thinking through this a little more in uh, a class when I was a student at Union. I was in Johannine literature class, and we came to the book of Revelation. Pretty much all of us in the class only had one understanding of the book. We didn't even know there were other understandings. And the professor was trying to just broaden our uh, awareness a little bit. And and somebody would say, well, we know this is going to happen this way, right? And he said, well, it kind of depends. I mean, if you read it this way, or, you know, there are people who say this. Then somebody would say, but at least we know this. And he'd say, well, it kind of depends. He kept going back and forth. And it was kind of frustrating when almost every class has one student who is freer with his mouth than with his mind, willing to be impertinent. And he said, this one student, well, then what do you know? As the air was sucked out of the room, we all focused on the professor. What's he going to say? And then in his characteristic way, when he really wanted to make a point, he'd take his glasses and put it down here to speak. And he said, This one thing I know. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back to get me. 
that really is the centerpiece. It really does mean a lot. It's okay that we don't know a lot of other things, but we need to settle on this point that Christ's return to rescue his people. Maybe that's hard for us to ponder sometimes in our setting here when we don't feel the need for rescue. The people in John's day knew very well their need for rescue. Our brothers and sisters right now in other parts of the world feel very well their need for rescue. But we do see, we do see Christ's reign flouted. The enemies of the gospel rising up so as to overturn God's Messiah in the language of Psalm 2. And we should long for the day when the rule of God is made manifest and complete. That's the point of the second coming of Christ. And even as we think about, we rally around this, and we think about the other particulars, we, uh, there's two things that I hold up for myself as arguments for humility and our approach to eschatology. I think there's good reason to hold our eschatology lightly, that is in the particulars of how it goes. Dr. Thornberry mentioned pro-millennialists. Many of you are familiar with pan-millennialists, that it'll all pan out in the end. But even as we think about those things, along the way, it hit me. When Jesus comes the first time, the most biblically literate people are the Pharisees. When you begin to look into their culture and what they were like and what they knew, I think we will readily confess that they knew their portion of the Scriptures better than we tend to know ours. Some suggest that a number of the Pharisees had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. We get stuck just trying to read through Leviticus. These people knew their scriptures well, at least in one sense. But they missed the first coming of Christ terribly. Therefore, if they missed the first one so bad we might all be careful and humble about our ideas about the second. And then add to that the witness of the church across the ages. The opinions vary greatly on various things. When you look at the first century church, the second, the third, the fourth, all the way up to now. This is not to say it's not worthwhile to think about these things, but it is to say on places where the church has struggled and not had a consistent voice, then we need to be aware of that. And we unite around the core, central truths. And here, this core, central truth is that Christ returns and sets up his reign. Now, let's look at some of these texts and see what we have going on here. The first one I want to turn your attention to is in Acts chapter 1. You say, no, wait a minute. We wanted to talk about the second coming of Christ. We can't go to the book of Acts. But actually, the New Testament is centered really in two truths. The death, burial, and resurrection, counted as one, and the return of Christ. These are the things every New Testament book is pointed towards Christ's return, and it shapes all of Christian living when we think appropriately. But here in Acts 1, we tend to be most familiar with verse 8, the Great Commission, a very important verse. But it's fascinating to see the context of the verse. In the first few verses, Luke sets up what he's doing and introducing this to Theophilus. 
And then in verses 4 and 5, the fact that Jesus had stayed with them for a number of days. He tells them the Holy Spirit is going to come. And then we're moving up to the ascension. They don't know that, but Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. Let's pick up at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There's our question. This is what people are asking about today. They may have had charts and flannel graphs themselves waiting for Jesus to draw on it. And here it is. What's the plan? Could you let us in on this whole idea? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this when it's all going to come about? And Jesus says to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Which is a nice way of saying, none of your business. This then is a good warning to us. If we gathered today for five hours and simply tried to pinpoint and speculate on when the Lord would restore the kingdom and make his rule manifest, we would be doing something about which the Lord himself said it is none of your business. We need not go there. Then what's fascinating to me is that the next statement is the Great Commission. And it begins with but, a contrast. They want to know eschatological charts, so to speak. He says, that is not your business, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. There it is. What is Jesus doing with the truth of his return? He's saying to us, we're not to be caught up with charts and graphs, speculations and timelines. That's not our business. But our business as we await the return of Christ is to take the gospel to the nations of the earth. The return of Christ, in this sense, is a bit of a deadline. We're to be laboring in this until he comes. And we do not have the luxury of wasting time on mere human speculation in this labor. Paul has hard things to say in his letters to Timothy and Titus about those who are caught up in man-made speculation rather than on the bedrock truths of God's word. So, just as they were challenged in their day, these disciples around Jesus here, so we should be challenged in ours to say, let's stick to what we know is our task. Let's take the gospel to the nations in light of the fact that Christ will return and then all will give account to him. But there's more to be said about that. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 24. This is a bit more familiar text in dealing with end times discussions. Often referred to, 24 to 26, as Jesus' Olivet Discourse, discussions about a tribulation and different things that are there. But the question I want to be asking as we look through here, because there's more in this chapter and the following than what we can deal with now. But my question is, how does Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, apply to his readers this truth of Christ's second coming? It starts in verse 3. It says, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming 
and at the close of the age? This is our question oftentimes. Give us some secret insight on when this is going to happen. Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. I want to say more from this chapter in a moment, but let's stop with this paragraph. These are familiar phrases that are used. But I want to suggest that at least the way I often hear them used, and maybe I'm only listening to certain groups and you've never heard them, but the way I often hear this used is, well, we've got wars and rumors of wars. Jesus is about to come back. Nations rising against nation. Jesus is about to come back. But look what Jesus actually said. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars in verse 4. See that you are not alarmed. Usually when that language is used, to say, get alarmed. Jesus actually said, say, well, of course. We live in a fallen world. What did you expect? See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Exactly the opposite of how we often hear it used. Not that it means nothing, but it's simply a reminder that the Prince of Peace has not yet manifested his full reign and the kingdom of darkness is still at work. So do not be alarmed. All these things will take place in verse 8, but they are simply the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus was warning them that people would come and try to hype things up and stir them up, but they weren't to worry about that or to pay attention to that. It was not the issue. He goes on in verse 9 to say, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now here, sometimes people say, this refers to a certain period of time which has not yet come. I don't think that's the case. He's speaking to these people in this time and saying, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. This difficulty is going to come, and we, we know that this has happened in the history of the church and will continue to happen at various times. Christians will be betrayed. They, they will be false teachers. Are there any false teachers about today? course there are and there always have been so we must be prepared we must stand fast even as we were exhorted in the first session we must realize that because of the lawlessness another translation says because the increase of lawlessness the love of many will grow cold i'm going to apply this a little more to pastors later but if you think here what does it mean then to live in light of the coming of christ it is to know that we're going to be challenged by various things, like even cell phones that you put on, uh, on vibrate. But nonetheless, if they're up against other things in your pocket, they make a lot of noise. Can I toss this to you, Dr. Thornberry? Thank you. You never know when the call will come. <laughs> I 
We must adapt to all things that come. But he's warning us here. As things go along, increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. This is the statement again about persevering. And making sure that our love does not grow cold. Making sure that the people we shepherd, even as lawlessness increased, that our love does not grow cold, but instead... Being reminded to endure, verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Of course, he's not talking here about earning our salvation by our endurance. But he is saying, as practically every New Testament author states, there will be people who name the name of Christ, who join up with the church, and then turn away, showing that they never were believers. First John's language, chapter 2, they went out from us because they were not of us, but we thought they were. That's the whole point. So he's saying, the life of Christ really born in the people of God perseveres through these things. And the, part of the point of knowing about the return of Christ is to urge us in our perseverance. And then in verse 14, making sure that the gospel goes to the nations again. That's his point. Now, after he said these things, and several other points he will make here. He comes down to verse 36. Let me pick up there. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? The Son doesn't know, but the Father does know. How does that work in our understanding of the Trinity? It does, but I'm not exactly sure all how big thing here is if the son doesn't know and if the angels don't know then the guy with the latest book in the Christian bookstore he doesn't know either so we can save our money and save ourselves some embarrassment it is embarrassing to look at the history of the church and realize how often people have been caught up in the speculation about when Christ is going to return you remember was it 87 reasons why Christ will return in 1987 um, no, it was 88 reasons. It was 88 reasons why Christ returned in 1988 because it was the fall of 1988 when I first came to Union. And it was the fall of 1988 when Christ was to return. I heard about it and didn't pay any attention to it. But then I discovered that some of my high school teachers had taken this serious. Other Christian leaders staying home from work on the day that was you know, appointed in preparation for Christ to return. It shook me a bit of thinking, how can these people be so taken in? Aside from the issue of what does this say to a watching world, did not Jesus say, the angels don't know, the Son doesn't know. But we are really attracted to high thoughts of ourselves already. And we are too easily susceptible to the thought that we might actually know what even the Son himself doesn't know. And of course they'll say, as this man said, Oh, but I'm not telling you the day. I'm just telling you the week. But the point here is that nobody knows. Nobody knows at all. We're not to speculate. Of course, that came out in 1988. The next year I was serving in a church in Jackson. I remember distinctly walking across the a wide parking lot to our mailbox one day to get the mail at the church. I open it up, and there in the mail is 19 or 89 reasons why it's 1989. Same cover, a banner thing across the front, 
extra information why I was one year off. These things will just continue and continue, but we must not be caught up in them. Jesus has said, it's none of your business, Acts 1. There's no way you can know here in Matthew 24. Instead, he goes on, this is the point. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. The point is, they were carrying on with everyday life. They had no idea, and then bang. It happened. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. He then describes various situations in life where people are just going about their business and then they are surprised. So in verse 44, therefore you also must be ready. Here's this key application. We're not supposed to know so that we might be encouraged to be ready at whatever time. You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. He then illustrates this with a couple of stories. In verse 45 to 51 is the story of the the servant. The master leaves and leaves things to him. He says, Blessed is the servant, in verse 46, whom his master will find so doing, that is doing what he was told to do, when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the story of the ten virgins who are waiting for the wedding, five are prepared to wait, five are not. The ones who are ready, enter. This is continually one of the key themes that the New Testament uh, brings out of the return of Christ. Be ready. But what does be ready mean? Well, obviously here with the servant uh, story, being about the business that the master left for us. He did not leave for us the end time speculation business, but left for us the business of advancing the kingdom which includes evangelism, missions, which assumes discipleship and growing healthy churches, being about that business so that when he comes, we will be found busy at the task that he left for us. It's not hard for me to contemplate this uh, in a number of ways. Uh, My dad, when I was growing up, would often leave me tasks to do while he was gone, especially in the summer. Uh, He was a school administrator, and so in the summer his schedule would be different. He would go to work, leave me with a task. He might be back at noon. He might be back at 5 p.m. or anywhere in between. One never knew. I think he liked that. And we've had about 40 beagles at a time. So we had them in kennels, concrete underneath them to gather the leftovers. And my job was to clean that out. Quite a job. And so, with some frequency, he would say to me in the morning, Ray, I'm going to work. I want you to have the kennels cleaned out when I get home. I knew I was not supposed to ask, Dad, when will you get home? It's just whenever it happens, it should be cleaned. So then it was up to me. 
I could start on the task right away. I could work on that. Or I could decide to watch Gilligan's Island for a while and just do whatever else and put off the work that the Father had given me. We lived at the end of a fairly long gravel road. And when my dad would come in his diesel truck, as soon as the truck hit the gravel, you could hear it in the house. You knew dad has returned. But you also knew as long as that gravel road is, it's not long enough to change your situation. When you hear the truck on the gravel, your situation is what it is. And my dad and I had a good relationship. I love him. So when the truck hit the gravel, that sound was either good news or bad news, depending on whether or not I was ready. The sound of the trumpet, the shout, the voice of the archangel is good news or bad news, depending on whether or not we're being ready. This is what he's telling us here. The way we're to apply and use the teaching of the return of Christ is to realize we need to be found faithful at his coming. We need to be found ready, like this servant here who is doing his task, not the one who is wasting his time and other things. Like these ladies waiting for the wedding, they brought extra oil so that they might persevere so that they might endure. They could wait longer if necessary. Far too often, if we do shallow evangelism, then in the church we're encouraging people only to have a little oil. Hold on just a little while. But we don't know. It could be just a little while. Or it may be a little longer time. And whatever it is, we need to be about the Father's work. We need to be about his business. Now, we could still ask a little bit about what that business is. So let me look at another couple of texts here. Look over at 1 John chapter 3. Getting a little Bible drill practice this morning. And let me just mention, uh, to brag on you just a little bit, in uh, my journeys in various places, I've had some opportunities to be in a number of just other settings uh, outside of Baptist life. And just about any time I'm in a meeting, that sort of meeting, and some, the speaker announces a text and there are people thumbing through pages. This was true in Scotland. It's been true in other places. The speaker will say, there must be Baptists in the group. They call that Baptist air conditioning uh, because the page is turning. I, I had not heard that till I was outside of those circles, so that was a good commendation. But over here in 1 John 3, let's go back actually to... Chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, there's the second coming thing, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared.
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This text is rich and has much for us as well. But I can only hit a few things. He is here also telling us Christ will return. But there's nothing here about dates. As a matter of fact, I thought about uh, titling this one, We Kiss Dating Goodbye. We just need to get rid of this trying to put dates on things. But instead, you see this warning. Of course, in 1 John, he's making the point. He has three tests for what, what do Christians really look like. That they love one another. That they believe that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. And that they practice righteousness. And so in this theme, this is what he's saying. Christ is going to return. You don't want to shrink back from him because of you knowing that you've not been obedient to him. And so he reminds him, of course, that this is not something we work up, but it is our response to the love of the Father. That's why he says, see what amazing love he would have, that he would call us his children. Rebellious, difficult, sinful people like us. That he would make us his children. And then he says, this is what we are now. We are God's children. But when we see him, we will be like him. This is what the older theologians call the beatific vision, the blessed vision. Seeing Christ in his glory. That which we cannot imagine. And it will so impact us as to make us like him. Not in the sense that we are gods, of course, but that it will drive out all sin from us. That we will spend an eternity free from sin. And the more earnest we are in our own soul work and fighting our own sin, then we will know the weariness of soul that comes with fighting sin. And then we will rejoice all the more in this part of the truth of the second coming of Christ, that we will be free from all sin. That's a glorious truth, but it's the gloriousness of it is in direct relation to the degree to which we fight sin now. Then we feel its value. But what he tells us to do in the meantime is our real focus here, and that's verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him. So all those who set their hope in Christ, believers, those who long for his return, those who wait for that vindication... These ones purify themselves as he is pure. So what are we supposed to do as we await the return of Christ? We're awaiting the return of the righteous one. And so we should be pursuing holiness. Pursuing righteousness right here and now. Of course, we're not going to attain perfect holiness. But the point is that we want to be heading in that direction so that as he comes, it's simply a completion of the work that's been being done. When we think about the return of Christ, then, we need to think about the fact that he tells us to be about his business of world missions. That he tells us to be ready and be involved in his work and be persevering. And that he tells us that then we should be pursuing holiness in a very real way. Still with this idea of holiness, look over at Titus chapter 2. I think this is a fascinating text as well. In Titus 2, Paul is, of course, giving instruction to Titus about how people should live. That's the whole point of 2, 1 to 10. He's telling them that there is a way of living which matches the gospel. 
So I can't resist this. I need to set it up with 116 then. Titus 116. They. Well, this day is the false teachers. He's been talking about from 110 to 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, Paul, tell us what you really think. He says there are people who profess to know God, but you know they're not because you see how they live. That's an important text for us in Christian life and in Christian ministry. Pastor, you can't say whether or not I'm a Christian. I claim to be. Paul says, oh, yes, I can. If it looks like a pagan, talks like a pagan, walks like a pagan, it's a pagan. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. So having made that point, then at 2.1 he says, But as for you, teach the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Teach them to live in a way that affirms the gospel instead of denying the gospel. So he walks through that by different groups of people, and then he roots it in the gospel. 2.11 to 14 is a restatement of the gospel. He says there, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God which saves, then also in verse 12, is training us. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is why you can tell by how people live. Of course, we struggle with sin. But the grace that saves you also teaches you. And if you are not a pupil in the, in the school of instructing grace, then you are not a recipient of saving grace. Because the grace of God which saves also teaches us to say no to sin and to live godly, righteous lives. Now, it is an important point that we are pupils in the school of training grace. None of us are yet graduates. We struggle with several tests along the way. But we're in the school. We're being trained. But part of the question in this text is, how? I mean, that's all fine and good, and it's important stuff, but how does the grace of God teach us? What is the text going to tell us about how God's grace teaches us to live holy? We like the idea of living holy. It's just hard. I think that's what verse 13 is doing. It's simply translated waiting for. I think the sense here is this is how it teaches us. Because it teaches us to be waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He goes on to discuss then the atoning work of Christ. But his point here is this. How do we learn to say no to sin? Legalism is our main way. We just keep saying, stop it. Stop it. Maybe that's what we do with our kids. Stop it. It doesn't work. Say it louder. Stop it. We just don't stop it. Sin is too powerful simply for our own willpower. It's got to be something greater. This is what the Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. There's got to be some greater desire, some greater draw to pull us away because we are sin addicts. That's what we are. In the gospel, we are redeemed and we are now recovering from that. But there needs to be some greater power. And what it is, according to this text, is waiting for the blessed hope. Now, as big as this book is, It's not that big. 
I'm pretty sure the Lord of the Rings trilogy is bigger. God gave us this. There's a real economy to the words. There's no wasted words. Matter of fact, in Paul's day, paper and ink are expensive, so you're not toying around with things. But he sure does use a whole lot of words here. He simply could have said, waiting for the return of Christ. That would have been a lot better. Maybe a copy editor would have suggested it to him. You know, trim it up a little bit. But he's being expansive with his language here. This is love language. This is excitement language. Why not just say waiting for the hope of the appearing of Christ? Why the blessed hope? I think because Paul's wired up right here. This is not just anything. This is the blessed hope. This is the aged Apostle Paul who knows what his shape his body's in. We're going to talk more about that in the next session. With the beatings and the sufferings he's gone through and the pressure of all the churches, now for a moment looking up and thinking and saying, we're waiting for that blessed hope, that dear glorious truth of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And his point is, as we set our affections on that, as we set our minds on the fact that this is not all there is, but there is coming a day when I will see the Lord Jesus Christ in his resplendent glory. Then the allures of sin begin to pale in that comparison. But the challenge, right, is that when we're tempted, we try to keep that out of our minds. Or maybe I'm the only one who does that. But my guess is no. But as we set our hearts on that and we are really waiting for this, this will empower us to live godly, sober, sensible, righteous lives in the present age. These are the things that the return of Christ is supposed to work in our lives. I'll close with this little story. I mentioned being in Scotland. And while we were there, I had the privilege to preach in a number of the uh, churches there. And for a while, I, I preached a number of Sundays in the church in Peterhead. That's a small village there on the northeast coast. Dear people, and it took me a while just to learn the accent to be able to understand what was going on. A number of fun stories about that. But as they were calling a pastor, and so I was not going to be there every week, some of them thought I was leaving. And they were having a send-off, and it was dear, and some of them were sad. And then I said, oh, I'm just, I'll still be in Aberdeen. You know, I'll come see you. We can, you know, and they realized, oh, you're not leaving for good. And one of the ladies said, ah, oh, you're Neawada Stawa. I had no idea what she was saying. But what she was saying was, oh, you're not away to stay away. You can come back. What Christ has told us is, he's not away to stay away. And the truth of his coming should empower us to live holy lives, to be about his work, taking the gospel to all the nations. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. Even as we began this session, making the point that we cannot figure out your truths on our own. So we are grateful that you've not left us to ourselves, that you've given us this incredible deposit of the word of God. Help us to be faithful stewards. And Lord, in spite of all the busyness, the glitz and the glamour of the things around us, help us to set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated 
the right hand of the Father. So that we will be prepared for the day when Christ, who is our life, appears. Help us to live faithfully in light of that truth, drawing strength from it. In Jesus' name, amen.